This Week in Retronauts. everyone and welcome to episode man let's calculate it'll be 70 something 70 earthbound was 69 bro i want to say 76 72 yes hi welcome to episode 76 of retronauts or maybe it's 74 whatever the hell episode it is it's not 64 and we screwed up oh my god we blew it okay i'm people were also mad that leisure suit larry was not episode 69 instead it was earthbound and i was like god oh i missed that train too you could just retroactively go back and remember (laughs) the episode so retronauts is now canceled goodbye everyone we're gonna be as confusing as wonder boy that sounds good (laughs) anyway hi i'm jeremy Parrish, and this week we're talking about the nintendo 64 which recently a couple of months ago turned 20 in japan and now this month turns 20 in America because, you know, time zone differences and everything. It's a big time delay. I don't know. Anyway, so September 27th-ish, 1996, Nintendo 64 launched in America. 20 years later, we're sitting here scratching our heads saying, was that really 20 years ago? <laughs> My God. Today's adults grew up with it, Jeremy. Wow. It's terrifying. Jeez. Yes. The the N64 kids have already retired. <laughs> it's it's just bizarre. They're the N64 elderly now. <laughs> no one retires in this economy, Jeremy. No, that's true. Yes. Uh, I guess I should say I'm Bob Mackey. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll get around oh, okay. to that. Okay. I wasn't sure. I'm Jeremy Parrish, as I mentioned before. And this week, people are talking with me about the N64, including, of course... Bob Mackie, I did want to point out this is an HD remake of a previous Retronauts episode. Did you know that, Jeremy? No, I didn't. Episode 3 was the, I believe, the, uh, let's see, 2006. That was the 10th anniversary (laughs) of the... uh, of the so N64. apparently I've covered this ground already, but again, I don't remember doing that. Well, Everybody, so it was a different context. You were comparing it to the PlayStation 3's launch. Yes, and, uh, yes. was it? Yeah, man, I, I'm glad I have you guys around because I really have no idea. Like, I, uh, Re- Retronauts is such a fire and forget prospect <laughs> for me. I just like record it and put it on the internet, and then I'm like. What did I just do? Like, I seriously have amnesia about the show. It's bizarre. Anyway, so, yeah. who else is here in the studio with us? Oh, hi. I'm Jared Petty from uh, IGN. Hi, Jared. Thanks for thanks for joining us. I'm glad this to be here. This is your first time on the show, and uh, it's nice to have you here after having had a cordial professional relationship with you for so yeah, long. I believe I met you uh, when you were a fan, uh, I believe, of 1UP at a, at a PAX at some point, maybe 2012. That wouldn't like have that. been me. No, I, w- I have never actually been oh, to a PAX. Oh, where did I so meet you? I know I met you somewhere. I think, Bob, I think we met right after I got hired at IGN. Was it E3? Right before at E3. Oh, it was yeah. E3. That's okay. right. Yeah, right I, remember, I remember that convention center. And I know I met you in Japan for the first time when you were living there. Yes. And stalking Matt Leone from I, afar. I, I was yeah. stalking Matt Leone from afar. Thank you for allowing me to come here despite those terrifying tendencies. <laughs> you were stalking me, so I'm fine with it. I feel like Matt could use a little terror in his life. Yeah. He's, so, he's so placid and so calm. Like, that's a that's a man who just needs his world shaken up. He's a native Californian, so I think uh, that explains yeah. it all. South California. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, he grew up in, like, San Diego. So. That makes sense. Yeah, so he's just completely chill and, and easygoing. I'm a so, cranky yeah. Midwesterner. Yeah, hey, I so. believe I met you in an arcade, and you were the scouting party to make sure I wasn't a crazy person. <laughs> uh, because, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, that was, that was a tactic that I learned from my now wife, who I met um, through, you know, the internet dating service or whatever, and... Uh, she, like, had a friend come and, and look for me. And when I showed up, they were like, okay, he doesn't look creepy, so you can go meet him. 
So, yeah. You weren't, like, tenting your fingers and twirling your mustache. <laughs> I was just looking out for my map. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us. And we are talking this week about the N64 and ruining the fact that we are 20 years older than we were the first time we played the system. That's terrifying because I was in college. Um, actually, was I in was college. in college. Had I graduated? No, I was still in college. I was an apple-cheeked youngster of 14, <laughs> <laughs> ready to make my mark in the world. And I was getting ready to head off to college. It was uh, okay. came out right before I finished high so school. So you're right in, right in between. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, so yeah, I guess we all kind of approached the system from slightly different places. Uh, for me, I was, you know, doing some part-time work, and so I could actually afford an N64 as soon as it came out. I don't know about you guys. I'm assuming nope. Bob is, you know, an apple cheek 14-year-old. Yeah, I wasn't going to save work. up for a while. Yeah, right. that would, that, I, I eventually got a job, but not until I was 18 or 17. Yeah. I was uh, mostly playing PC games at that point. So the N64 was actually my little brother's console, and that was just fine because I could jump right in and play everything he got. And then when I got to college that fall uh, in 97, the N64 was the communal four-player gaming machine because that was right around the time of Goldeneye. I think you were saying player because it sounded like you were going to say communal four-play, and that's just... (laughs) No, 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 definitely not. Uh, But yes, that is a, a very, very important point. The N64 was the ultimate college room video game machine. I don't think anything now even compares. I, I literally started high school in 96 when the N64 launched. And uh, I mean, I was not living in a dorm, but it was like the hangout system. I mean, we loved our PlayStation too, but I mean, that got the most play amongst people, mm-hmm. even if the games didn't look so great. Oh, those four controller ports and the fact that they they really encouraged you to, to grab those. And, and from Mario Kart on, you had Mario Kart, then you had GoldenEye, and then you had Mario Party and just the, these wonderful easy pick-up-and-play social games that you could dump dozens of hours into. Also, the, the N64 yeah. takes a lot of flack for some of the designs, design decisions Nintendo made with the hardware, but its two most obvious design choices, the four comp- controller ports and the cartridge-based games, I think made it just an effortless, easy social experience because you... Like, cartridges are indestructible. You slam a cartridge in the system, turn it on, four people are playing right away. There's no startup, no, like, Yeah. Like, on PlayStation, you don't have to go Uh, through all that. Yeah, like, load times, none of that. You don't have to worry about fragile discs. You don't have to worry about discs getting lost. It was just, you know, like, you wanted to play games, But when you were slam Mario sixty four or Mario Kart sixty four, you're good. When you were playing with friends, though, it was always like the problem was like, okay, which one of these controllers is broken? Like, because because <laughs> one of them is going to be like right. a little wiggly, a little wobbly. There'll be plastic rattling around inside of it. That's why they came in different colors. Yeah, it's like get that red, get was, that mad cat's crap away. To it. Until that one of you is going to be automatically disadvantaged. Yeah, we'd go to the computer lab and play Quake until the lab would close. Run to the dorm, plug in Goldeneye, and just keep going through mm-hmm. the night. It was wonderful. I admit that the Nintendo 64 is my least favorite Nintendo console. Um, But despite that, I still have fond memories of it. I still think pretty highly of it. It's an interesting little slice of uh, video game history. I don't remember what I said about the N64 10 years ago. I don't even care. I believe you were charitable. Okay, charitable is good. (laughs) Um, I've actually, for the past couple of years, ever since I started Game Boy World, I've owned the domain ultra64.com with the intention of doing something similar to Game Boy World. Um, but it's a much more involved process because the first game for the system is Super Mario 64 mm. versus like Super Mario Land. It's a like it had fewer games and is a more manageable library, but those games often were very expansive, very large, very involving. Um, so so the N64, yeah, it's 
It's an interesting system because it has the sparsest library of any Nintendo console save the Wii U, but or you know Virtual Boy, hmm. uh, which does is the, not really good company to be yeah. keeping. Does the Wii U have a smaller library than the Wii U have a smaller library than the N sixty four? I, it's kind of I hard wonder. to say. Um, you know, if you factor in like digital releases, um, they might be a. About comparable. Yeah, I got. I, I assume there are more boxed physical games on the N sixty four because that was the yes, only format. Definitely. Yeah, um, that'd be a fascinating comparison. I've I've never looked at the two to see the, which one uh, has the larger library, but I, I do think that they made that a marketing thrust originally. They knew they were going to have fewer games, so they said, "But we're going to make them great quality." And then that, of course, became both a point of pride and contention, depending on what part of the history you're looking at and who, right. whose perspective you're coming from. Across all regions, the 64, Nintendo 64, including 64DD, hmm. had just shy of 400 games. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. That's impressive. It's actually That's not that many games. I mean, I expected it to be a lot smaller. It's, it's a number. console that was around for four, five years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's, you know, 80 games a year on average. I was I, I was honestly expecting you to say 200, to be fair. I was really, really expecting no. a lot more, less than that, yeah. I mean, a lot of these are, like, wrestling games and annual sports yeah, games. That's true. Yeah, Racing games. Um, there's probably, like, 50 that are unique to Japan, and there's three that are unique to Europe. Um, so, no, the, the, the system had a, a decent uh, library, and... You know, because people were making fewer games for it, I feel like the game, like there was more of a sense that this game counts. Like mm-hmm. the PlayStation really, you know, the, the the CD platform, because it was so inexpensive, really gave developers a chance to experiment. Mm-hmm. It allowed publishers to publish niche games. You know, the RPG exploded on PlayStation in a way that it hadn't been able to before. And I think a lot of that had to do because with the fact that it was uh, less of a risk to publish those games on disc. Like it was cheaper. It was not as much of a problem. But I feel like the developers who worked on N64, not saying that every N64 game was a gem, by God, no, no, not at all. But I feel like like they did have to make it count. They had to really sit down and say, like, we're going to release this game – it's going to, you know, the MSRP is going to be $20 more expensive than a PlayStation game, its equivalent. It's going to have less memory capacity. It's going to have, you know, um, you know, worse textures, whatever. Like, if we're going to do this, we've got to make it count. So it was a more strategic system. Yeah, it, it, that could lead to quality. That could also lead to conservatism. Uh, right. Yeah, it's something and you knew was, was going to sell. Both. Both yeah. happened. Um, and the system was definitely deficient in certain areas. There were no 2D games released for the PlayStation or for the N64. Like people talk about how the N64 or the sorry the PlayStation and Sony, you know, was really averse to 2D games, but PS1 still had a lot of PS or 2D would you, games. Would you count Mischief Makers? No, no. It, was, it was a 3D background. 2.5. Yeah, yeah like there so. were no just pure bitmap games. The system wasn't geared for it. So. It's it's strange. There were almost no RPGs of note. Wait a minute. What about Mortal Kombat trilogy? <laughs> uh, I'm being a dick. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah. So I guess there were a few ports. Um, yeah, there was Killer trilogy, Instinct. Okay, Quest sixty four was I guess an RPG, right? And what else? It was. Yeah, um, yeah. one of like three. Yeah, there was like uh, what was it called? Uh, started with an A. Aiden Chronicles. Yes, oh. Aiden Chronicles. Oh. <laughs> yeah, gross. But but yeah, for the most part, the the games that I really loved. 
kind of stopped showing up on N64, and they trans they migrated to PlayStation RPGs, 2D platformers, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like you didn't play those on N64 because they didn't exist. Yeah, Nadia Oxford from from your site, US Gamer, uh, wrote a thing recently, and she was talking about that the N64 was the place you went for fast 3D action games, mm-hmm. um, and it was really kind of excelled at that. I I'd forgotten the fact that you know it, even something is is Obtuse is like Daikatana. It was PC and N64. Yep. Uh, oh, what a it, weird port that was. Yeah. yeah. yeah you know, there, there were a ton of first-person shooters on N64, and that's actually kind of where the like the modern play control system for you know controller setup for shooters came into being. Like developers started experimenting with that weird, weird controller and the C sticks and everything, and you know the uh, the the console first-person shooter went from being this thing that. Uh, why would you want to play that to be yeah. like, oh, yeah, okay, I can do this. That's why I am upset, uh, not not personally upset, but a little a little miff when people uh, are dismissive of GoldenEye. because like, oh, I was playing Quake at the time. Well, it's like, that's good for yeah, you. Yeah, congratulations. Yes. Are you playing it with your friends on a TV? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, you're right, Jeremy. They said this can, this can happen. This genre can be accessible to you in your controller, and here's how. I mean, GoldenEye obviously does not stand up. It's hard to play today. Multiplayer is not fun if you're used to modern multiplayer experience, but still, it was an important first step towards Halo that we all kind of are. Mm-hmm. Not, I won't say we're all dismissive, but I think it's really easy to be dismissive because you're like, well, on the PC there was this, you know. The, yeah, I, I never understood that chauvinism. Even yeah. then, I, we were playing. We yeah, were all playing both. gamers. Yeah, <laughs> it was because I Quake, did it first. It was me. <laughs> well, Quake was fun, but you yeah. could get people to come in and play. Uh, GoldenEye or Perfect Dark that we're not going to give Quake a try, that we're not going to fool around with that control yeah. scheme, that we're not going to fool around with the you know the matchmaking and the Listen 9 and all the stuff you had to do to get that working. And if, Just like Jeremy said earlier, you plug the cartridge in and it just works. And if you weren't used to the PC environment, it's like, okay, get your hand on the mouse, now get your fingers on WASD, mm-hmm. and then here's all this other stuff. It's like, no, no, just grab the controller, move the control stick, you're fine, you're good. And I, that was very important for people to learn how to play an FPS. The N64 yeah. in a lot of ways was the optimal Nintendo like the ideal Nintendo experience it was in a lot of ways everything that Nintendo kind of values in the video game experience like the meta the meta text around the gaming uh it was about couch co-op and couch competition like you didn't have to go online you didn't have to worry about internet it was just like hanging out with your friends and playing you didn't have to worry about load times and about dealing with system updates you just plug in the cartridge like again like that was that's what Nintendo has always been about. Mm-hmm. Like they've always tried to push for no load times in their games. They've always really pushed for, you know, local co-op, local multiplayer as opposed to internet. And that's just, you know, part of it's it's baked into their DNA. It's part of their experience and I think you know, it comes from them having started out as a toy company. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really about the social experience that exists within games. The N64 was uh, you know, up until we like, there was just no other console that created an experience like that. We just recorded a uh, a Super NES retrospective and talked about how Sega Genesis was the system you went to for fast, uh, snappy pick up and play experiences. It's really strange because it was like the the switch between <laughs> Republicans and Democrats in the mid twentieth century. Like all of a sudden, wait a minute, what yeah. Sega and, Gen- and and Nintendo stood for switched in the 64 it was called the era. Sega strategy Jeremy yeah okay <laughs> so there's there's still some uh, some Sega Dixiecrats out there but, uh, but yeah no like it was um, it was just a and it's just interesting because in a lot of ways N64 was antithetical to everything I had come to expect from Nintendo but at mm-hmm. the same time 
it was also like the embodiment of Nintendo. It was weird how it shrugged off a lot of things I associated with the Nintendo brand, like RPGs, uh, obviously. And uh, that is why, I mean, I had so much anxiety, like PlayStation or N64, which one should I get? And I love Mario 64 so much, played it all the time in my friend's house. But as soon as I knew Final Fantasy was going to the PlayStation, that's where I needed to be. And again, it was nice to have friends who were like, yes, we have both. And usually in, in my situation, I was not that... I was not. I was a kid, but I wasn't like super young kid. So all my friends who had an N sixty four also had a PlayStation. They were not the people. Who were like, I'm gonna wait six months for the next good game, which was typically what, it, what the cycle was. Am I right? Like every six to eight months Pretty is much, like yeah. The, yeah. the next rare or Nintendo game that you have to play. Yeah, PlayStation. I was buying like two games a week for it for a while. Yeah, like, yeah. I had a job. It was fine. I could do that. And those uh, games were less expensive, which yeah. also made it easier. Yeah. And N sixty four was like sometimes I would buy a game and play it for a week or two, and then. The system would sit kind of to the side for a long time. I, I've heard the the figure around six a year. I, I, I think, yeah, there's about – if you take it over that five-year cycle, you got about 30 core games that are kind of must-plays on the thing. And yeah. everything else is sort of meh. So I think that's about right. Uh, but there were – what was there was often so golden. I was looking over the old um, – uh, the old uh, Next Generation magazine uh, feature about something is wrong with the N64. Oh, and you, you oh. remember the Lincoln quote. Yeah. About and to quote was him. that the Shattered Mario face? Yeah, That's the Shattered that Mario face yeah. one. Yeah. It's it's a neat one to go back and read now. And But one of the things that I saw there that I had never thought about till I, till I reread it was that this was kind of the beginning of video game consoles not having everything. Uh, and mm, yes, you know, you're right. Sega had Sonic and Mario had Mario. And yeah, but we were used to th- this idea of Nintendo's other end of its identity where these great first party games and not quite all the third party support we want. This started that. And before that, I can't think of a successful console that and this one was successful. So 36 million units. But I, I can't think of another one that had that kind of weird pick and choose ecosystem or where you'd make a statement like what you said a minute ago, Bob, this is what me think of it, that you had the PlayStation and the N64. You weren't there waiting. Um, and I, I've often wondered what inside Nintendo made that happen? What made them make that determination? Because mm. in the GameCube generation, they obviously made more of an effort to reach out to third parties. You had you know, Resident Evil from Capcom or you had Metal Gear from Konami there on the GameCube, and yet they sold even fewer GameCubes mm. than they did in 64s. I, I think uh, in terms of uh, there not being a pack-in, if that's part of your analysis. I'm not talking about the packing card. I'm sorry if I'm being confusing here. What I mean is that this was a a console that was not designed to have every kind of game. And they were okay with that. Weirdly okay with Hmm. that. Yeah, that's weird. I I think N64 is in a lot of ways a miscalculation by Nintendo. Uh, It did really well in the U.S., and that's it. Like, Mm. it sold horribly in Japan and was pretty mediocre in, in in Europe. Um, it was just in the U.S. where it was extremely popular. And again, I think it's because of that social element to it um, that really resonated with American players. Um, but I, I think that Nintendo kind of miscalculated, um, you know, the, the compromises they made, how that would affect uh, their relationship with publishers. I think they assumed, like, yeah. we have control. You know, we had control in, in the NES era. We had control in the Super NES era. They didn't really take into consideration all the the side effects that had, all the bitterness and resentment that it bred among publishers. And when they said, like, we're going to keep the same systems in place, you know, cart manufacturing and first-party controls over yields and things like that, publishers were like, no, we don't have to do that anymore. They lost so many great publishers in this era, which is very sad. Right. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Got it.
But yeah, it's uh, N64 is an interesting creature. So let's go back to the beginning of mm. the, the whole thing. Of course, um, video game systems don't just spring whole from nowhere. The N64 had been in development for several years by the time it launched in 1996. Um, it was originally called Project Reality, and the pitch was Jurassic <laughs> Park graphics on your TV. <laughs> and this was announced in 1993 when Jurassic Park came out and you know was in the theaters and was like wowing everyone. It was before Toy Story. They couldn't use the Toy Story metaphor because no one knew what Toy Story was. I think, I think they eventually would. Though. <laughs> they did eventually switch to Toy it Story. I wasn't sure if that was the M2 or Nintendo that did that, but. Um, uh, it, it was, was everyone. I think it was just easy shorthand for uh, journalists to use. Like, you've seen these graphics. Well, it's kind of like that, but not really. You know, <laughs> just right. So the uh, the system was announced at Shoshinkai 1993. That's Space World. Uh, it used to be what Nintendo did instead of TGS, Tokyo Game Show. Now they just don't do anything. <laughs> they just um, make home videos yeah, to show you. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, but that was like a, an all-Nintendo uh, event in Kyoto, I think. And uh, it happened every year. And they announced the Project Reality that would be a 64-bit system leapfrogging the Sega Saturn and Sony PlayStation that had already been announced. It would be priced at $250, which Mm. was about half of what everyone expected Sega and uh, uh, Sony's systems to launch for. They figured it would be like $500 for those consoles. And supposedly it would be two times as powerful as the competing systems. So... Half as much cost, twice as much power. Like, it's a winning combination. Yeah. Um, And it was, like, it was pretty hard not to be excited about that prospect. And they were working in partnership with with Silicon Graphics, building this this sort of magic dream machine built on their $100,000 hardware. And they were going to scale this down and put it in your living room, and it was going to be the best thing ever. This was the first Nintendo console not designed internally at Nintendo. I mean, Nintendo's engineers were working on it. Uh, and they you know, worked in close uh, association with SGI. But it was really built on SGI's technology, and they let SGI, in a lot of ways, take the lead on the hardware design. Um, so it was not you know, led by Gunpei Yokoi or Masayuki Uemura. I think uh, uh, it, it, it rep- represents, in a lot of ways, a more Western philosophy. And we, we saw that happening to a certain degree um, you know, uh, Sega would would start to look more toward. I mean, really, Sega had already done that with uh, the 32X that was uh, that was led by the U.S. And then the Dreamcast. You know, they had the competition with mm-hmm. Black Belt and and uh, oh. Durandal. No, mm-hmm. was it Durandal? Dural. Dural. Which one was Katana? Yeah. Was it just the oh, Katana? Katana. Katana. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Katana. 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 Yeah. Durrell's the Virtua Fighter guy, right? Uh, the yeah, the shape shifting yeah. woman. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so. You know, there was one Dreamcast that was designed in Japan and one that was designed in the U.S. They went with the Japanese design, whatever. Hmm. But, you know, it just kind of was a a product of its times. Like, Japan had led its own console development for a while, but now it was starting to look to the engineering and computer design experts in the U.S. and and really getting... uh, getting, I mean, Dreamcast ran on Windows, right? It had Windows, a version of Windows yeah. as an option. It did not run on Windows. Okay. Yeah, they didn't actually do a lot with it. It had the ability, but it, it didn't actually do all that. That does feel like a very Western choice, though. Instead of developing proprietary things, you would you would include like that third party, like right. malware or whatever. Well, to hear to hear Silicon Graphics tell it back in the day, they 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 said, you know, we put this thing together and thought there's game applications, and they started approaching mm. um, companies with it. And there were stories back then that Sega actually rejected this, and then Nintendo turned out to be the better fit. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I actually haven't been able to find who at Nintendo led development. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I found references to Genyo Takeda, uh, who yeah. had been with Nintendo for a long time and was kind of, it makes sense because Takeda, uh, you know, like in the, in the NES era, his work was primarily with Western-facing games, things like Punch-Out. Mm-hmm. Um, he was kind of the guy who, and Star Tropics. Like, he made the games that were more for the American audience. He was literally so, Nintendo's yeah. first game developer. Oh, yeah? He preceded uh, Gunpa Yokoi by a few years, yeah. Hmm. He's a really interesting guy. Wow. Uh, but, yeah, Takeda, it would make sense for him to be the one sort of spearheading this development that was happening in collaboration with an American company. Um, so, you know, the, the involvement of SGI led to kind of an interesting assumption which is that we'd be seeing Final Fantasy VII on N64 because, of course, Final Fantasy had been on Nintendo platforms to this point. Like, that was kind of where Final Fantasy started and where it had really risen to prominence. And uh, Square put together a uh, the, the Final Fantasy VI interactive demo for Silicon Graphics workstations. And, uh, you know, you've probably seen the tiny little thumbnail-sized videos that yeah, have, like... That got me drooling. Yeah, little <laughs> 3D versions of the characters. Yeah. I remember downloading that on my my school's internet at, like, just a glacial pace. The tiny mm. little, like, <laughs> 240 by 180 bitmap graphic. It, it took was, forever for that video to load, but was it was it so great. Terra, Lock, and Shadow? I believe so, yes. Okay, yeah. Fighting a golem. I, I can see those images in my head. I, I, yeah. I look at that video so much. It, it was like a super drawn-out version of what would become Final Fantasy VII's battle system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you think the summons take a long time, but this battle <laughs> system was, like, it, it was like that for every fight. But the idea was, like, you know, just square experimenting to say, how could we move into 3D? I believe you, you were, like, using magic by moving a mouse cursor. Yeah, it's like you would draw, like, yeah. a star shape mm-hmm. to, to cast spells and stuff like that. So... You know, because that was on an SGI workstation and SGI was developing the N64, people were like, whoa, this is Final Fantasy VII mm-hmm. for N64, even though it's Final Fantasy VI characters, which I guess people didn't recognize because they were based more like on their, you know, original Amano designs as opposed to the little sprites. That makes but sense. anyway, um, it didn't help that some magazines were like, this is Final Fantasy VII right here. Yeah. I think GameFan did that. Mm-hmm. There's so a lot of misreporting. It, it created kind of a misunderstanding, but... At the same time, it was interesting because it did show, like, hey, maybe Nintendo's going in the right direction here by working with SGI because, mm-hmm. like, this is kind of the leading, uh, you know, the leading edge of, of game design and technology. It's weird that that a Square property was the showcase, and I hope I'm not jumping ahead and we can go back to this later, but Square was sort of the company who led the charge in getting other companies to leave Nintendo. I found this out in researching a piece I did on Super Mario RPG for U.S. Gamer, uh, and it, apparently Square, the president of Square at the time, was contacting people, uh, other developers, like, no, we need to be, be with Sony. This is where we need to be. And apparently that's where all the, the bad blood came from. The comment from Yamauchi in 99 about how RPG players are losers, things like that. So I see. Square I really that. helped people like see the light in terms of leaving Nintendo. Yeah, I mean, Square, I mean, yeah. Square was like the first notable defection. Um, a, lot of, a lot of publishers didn't show up on N64, and it was kind of quiet. You were just like, oh, I guess I never did see a Namco game on N64. Was, was there one Capcom game, the Mega Man Legends Two. port? Uh, oh, there was a Disney's Magical Tetris Challenge. Oh, we can't also. miss that one. Was Disney, was the Mickey's And also Racing there was game? Mega Man Legends okay. 60, or Mega Man 64. There was Resident Evil 2. Yes, And there right. was Disney's yeah. Magical Tetris Challenge. Okay. But that's so Capcom made three games. I, I have fond but 
possibly distorted memories of that Resident Evil 2 port. It, it was it was remarkable that yeah. they got that yeah. onto a cartridge. Like, wow, how'd you do that? But it's an astounding technological achievement. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm sure it plays okay. But it's, I, I yeah. actually remember it being pretty good. But I, I again, mm. I wonder if that's just the the rose colored glasses. I'm pretty sure it looks bad in both versions now because I have revisited those games. But yeah. So at some point, the name Project Reality went away, and Nintendo changed to the name Ultra 64, Mm -hmm. which I guess they decided they couldn't do because, I mean, it made sense. Like, you had Nintendo, Super Nintendo, now here's Ultra Nintendo. Yeah. And they put 64 in there because, you know, do the math. Right. Um, But, uh, you know, there was a Nintendo publisher called Ultra, Mm. Ultra Games, so maybe that had something to do with it. I kind of preferred Ultra 64. I feel I felt like disappointed when they changed the name. I was like, Nintendo 64 sounds so bland. I mean, the number is significant, but I feel like I needed that superlative to tell me how how cool it was. You know, uh, like, I mean, you had the Nintendo Entertainment System, the Super Nintendo true. Entertainment System, I just and ex- then it, it was actually it, yeah. like punchy and and precise instead of belaboring like Ultra Nintendo 64 system. It was just. Nintendo 64. Yeah. And, and, and N64 yeah. is, yeah, very euphonic. It those just rolls my, off the tongue. Those are my expectations as a 14-year-old, though. Okay, like, no, enough. I need to be told this is awesome. <laughs> like, U64 doesn't sound as good as N64. That's true. I agree. Yeah. I think, I think it was a good choice. And uh, it had that nice little logo that was like the sort of uh, three-dimensional uh, isometric N. I do like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah we have a ta- table at work that's built on one of oh, those yeah, things. Nice. I, love that. Nice. I love that thing. Um so, yeah, like everything was looking rosy until sometime in, I don't know, 1995 when the game, the system was supposed to launch in 1995 oh. and it didn't. Hmm. And, uh, you know, Sega came out with Saturn in 1994, then uh, Sony launched in Japan in 1994 and both of those showed up in the U.S. in 95. Yep. And Nintendo did not have their system out by that point and it wouldn't launch for another year. August, uh, no, September uh, 1995 in the U.S., or 1996 in the U.S. And I wonder if that just created a rolling compound problem. I think it did. Them. I oh. think, um, so, you know, the uh, the N64 ended up actually being cheaper than originally planned, but so did the other systems. PlayStation was 300, Saturn was 400, N64 was 200. Um, if they had managed to get the N64 to launch with Mario 64, on the same day as PlayStation or like within weeks oh, of it God, yeah. for a hundred dollars less, what what could they have done? <laughs> like that would have been amazing. Like they would have been a juggernaut force. And you know, Mario sixty four was still like this amazing experience and everyone had to own it, you know, play it and and own the system to play it on. But you know, they they gave uh Sony and to a lesser degree Sega a chance to really establish themselves in the market. And, you know, the, the PlayStation was in its second generation of software by the time N64 launched. So you had games like uh, Persona. And, well, that's not like a big, um, you know, people pleaser. But you had, you know, uh, Tomb Raider coming out. You yep. had a lot of these yeah. these kind of like more refined games beyond the first year of PlayStation. Like PS1's first year was pretty rough. Yeah. If you didn't yeah. want Wipeout or... Uh, <laughs> 
or Ridge Racer. If you didn't like racers, there wasn't a lot to really push it. Jumping but, Flash for life. <laughs> yeah, but but I, by by nineteen you know fall nineteen ninety six. PS1 was established. They also had the volume at that point that yeah. when when N64 did come out, they were able to undercut the price of the software very quickly, mm-hmm. cut down to $50 mm-hmm. a disc, start the greatest hits, $25 collection, all in response to Nintendo's launch. They, they were just so much better positioned. And that combined with the large third-party library. Now, one question I have, I remember when I was younger reading about the delays, and most of what I anecdotally remember is the delay in the N64 being attributed to Mario 64's development. That's I'm sure it was, yeah. I mean, is that true? We did uh, whole, Pretty much all the research I did on this episode said yes. Yeah, we did a whole episode on it, and it was like that in Ocarina of Time is basically what Nintendo c- killed themselves making. Just we have, this is the first time we're doing this, we have to make it right or else ev- we lose everything. So yeah, it was a very like harrowing development for both of those games. So I guess the question is, if Nintendo 64 had launched on schedule without Mario 64, would it have been as strong as launching a year late with Mario 64? I say Mario 64 was vital, completely vital, so important. What the what the head start gave Sony and Sega, I think, it was the ability to de- redefine games for a culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the Genesis did, like you've gr- you've gone you've gr- outgrown your NES games. Now it's time for us. I feel like this was addressing maybe kids that were a little too young for the Genesis. Like you you played SNES and whatever. Now these are edgy, fun adult games on CDs. Oh my yeah. god! And you need a memory card. It's fun. But like I feel like they were trying to age up. You know in terms of what games could do, where Nintendo was like, oh, it's Mario again, which I'm not saying that's bad because Mario 64 is an amazing game, but still, the impression Nintendo was giving was, oh, it's old video games again. Yeah, yeah. if they had had something to follow up Mario 64 with immediately that was also very different. That was supposed that to be Ocarina of Time. Right, and yeah. that would have helped tremendously. And Mario 64, when it launched, was like something that came down from outer space. I mean, you just yes. never seen anything like that. It was one of those few video games that maybe just stop and jaw dropped to the ground and then when you started playing it it was even more fun than it looked when you were watching someone else do it It, but there was very little after to distinguish that console there were good games but nothing for a long time that made me go i have to have this until goldeneye a year later and by then it may have been too late you're so right about the impact of mario 64 and recently on uh, my friend chris antiso's podcast 30 2010 i think it was this is months ago but you can actually listen to audio of mario 64 being unveiled for the first time and people are gasping and clapping and cheering like they've never – well, they had never seen anything like this before. And I feel like VR is the only thing that will have that impact again on people because it's like something you've never seen. No, Jeremy AR. Shaking said AR. Okay, yeah. it's Pokemon, Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go, yes. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have that – that didn't have that effect on me. So. <laughs> uh, Pokemon Go not knocked my socks it's off. A, it's, a more, it's a more subtle – but yeah. I, I think Nintendo believed in Mario 64 so much that they did not include it as a pack-in. It was not – I mean it was to save money but also it's like this is too important to give away. Like you need to buy this and Perceived you're going value. to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean I, I mentioned Howard Lincoln a minute ago or a few minutes ago uh, in response to what Jared was saying about that in, uh, next-gen issue. Um, in, that, in that issue, you know, they are talking to Howard Lincoln, former president of NOA, mm-hmm. and saying – or was he president? I've totally forgotten. I thought he was uh, there. That, uh, I was like, wait, I don't remember what. He yeah, was. he was like. I thought he was he just was their lawyer. Up, or yeah, something. no, he he was he was up there in the ranks. I think he took over for Arakawa. Yeah, God, I can't remember. I should <laughs> I should refresh my memory. Anyway, they were like, well, you know, there aren't a lot of games coming for the system, uh, so why would anyone want to buy the system? And uh, his response was basically, "You can ask me that," and my response will be just to smile and say, 
two words, Mario 64. The words were going to be F you. But they really did believe in that game. Like, they felt that it was strong enough to, you know, move the system for a while and let it build up a software library. And they were right. That was the hottest toy. Like, you could not buy an N64 at Christmas of 1996. Mm-hmm. After that, it dropped off. But, you know, it still it still did pretty well for itself in the U.S. I've got to assume that Mario sold one-to-one. As I, would, as I would think, like, has. why would you buy an N64 at launch and be like, yeah, Pilot Wings, that's <laughs> that's what I'm here for. No one I knew, sorry, everyone I knew with an N64 had it by mm-hmm. default. Uh, there was no one who didn't have it who had an N64. I mean, you just had to have it. And yet, that, so that happens in, in 96 during the release. And yet by May, we've got a major magazine sitting there asking questions about, hey, is something wrong with this console? The, the shift in, in public opinion happened pretty quickly. It's well, funny that the last episode we did was tied into the PS3 because that's similar to what happened with the PS3. I mean, obviously, it had a much better fate, but that questioning, like, what's going to happen now was yeah, a Sony, very similar Sony thing. turned that around, but it wasn't yeah. a similar place. Yeah. And... Um, you know, for different reasons. It was more price and, and complexity of development. Um, but, yeah, the uh, the N64, like that first year, I bought a uh, an N64 at launch with Mario 64. I didn't bother with Pilot Wings. And then I picked up a few games throughout that fall. I picked up Wave Race, which was beautiful, but I also realized, oh, I don't really like racing games that mm-hmm. much, so I didn't play it that much. That water looks so good. It though. looked, yeah, uh, it, was, it was great, and it felt great. Like the the response, yeah, to the, the way you physics just hit of the waves. skipping the waves, yeah. it was it was fantastic. Uh, you know, like you could also play Hydro Thunder in the arcades, but I liked Wave Race better. I still, you know, it only had so much value to me. Uh, I picked up Turok, which <laughs> was. <laughs> Uh, boy. <laughs> it looked good and had a lot of design flaws. It's secretly, I, a Silent Hill game. I had played, yeah, I had played enough PC shooters or Mac shooters at that point, like the Marathon games and Doom, that I was just like, mm, no, this isn't cutting it. And uh, I was going to get Shadows of the Empire, like Shadows of the Empire. I was totally stoked for. I absolutely wanted to play it until I actually saw it in action, and then I was like, oh. Not so good. This game that was a system seller for me is no longer that, a system seller. It's basically just that first level and then step away from the, the yeah, console. Yeah, it, it was Play out the Hoth battle and you're good. If everybody so, could have just played the first level of Shadows, we'd all been happy. Yeah, never yeah so I, in that, that first fall, I owned three games, two of which were kind of disappointments to me. Um, and then, you know, in the beginning of two, uh, 1997, I picked up Mario Kart, Mario Kart 64, played it for like a month solid, and then I was done with it. Mm. And I looked and I said, what's next? There's nothing next. Yeah, you were talking about Turok. I, I dug up an old uh, – IGN began partially as N64.com, mm-hmm. and I was digging up an old article uh, from that period where they were talking about Turok in terms of it being a greater game than Doom or Quake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was, there was a lot my, of how our, per, our perceptions have changed. Yes, <laughs> was yes. that Casa Messina? <laughs> I don't know. No. Uh, there was no name pair, attached. Was it pair? No name was attached. The, 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 I think the strategy for Nintendo was, and obviously when it went, right up, went way off the rails, was, okay, first year Mario, second year Zelda. Then it was third year Zelda, right? Because it was 96 Mario, 98 yeah. Zelda. So they needed Zelda to fill that gap, but it didn't come at the right time. And I think they lost a lot of headway there because Zelda was also just like a can't-miss-it head-turning, jaw-dropping game for a lot of people. And um, maybe not with the same impact of Mario 64, but it was still huge for them. The magazine that declared N64 dead in May of 1997 Mm -hmm. uh, in 
October of 1998 declared Zelda the greatest game of all time. Yeah, after having <laughs> so, declared Super Mario 64 the greatest game of all time in there was 96. Just, there's just not enough hyperbole for in yeah. 64. And to be fair to them, they they did they said this something's broken, but it could be changed if you right. did. But yeah, there were and there were other wonderful things. I think about Smash Brothers, uh, which I know Jeremy's not your your cup of tea, but. Uh, talking about wonderful four-person on the couch games, and that came along fairly late. But I was just like, "Oh wow, yeah. there's still good reason to own this thing." And this as with, uh, I mean, I think Goldeneye, the uh, dismissal was after the fact. But I think with Smash Brothers, there was a lot of skepticism and like, "This is just a stupid idea. Who cares?" And it was so much fun. I mean, like my friends weren't like into kitty Nintendo characters. They we played Duke Nukem and Goldeneye and stuff, but we had fun with that game. And um, I was like, "Wow, you guys care about Nintendo as much as I do." <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. I didn't well, you got fo- four people sitting there. That was what made it work yeah you, you were willing to forgive a lot for that for that kind of party jump right in and play experience and and because it was so uh resembled platformers so much you knew how these characters controlled yeah from the moment you picked up and yeah it was very a, like uh and to the, to the point where the gamecube one had like a 2d platforming mode and the wii one did too yeah yeah exactly and there's a lot of other things so again mario party very important for it uh, i think about um and then you get majora's very late which is a game i can't play Mm. Um, because it, it hurts me. You're, one, you're uh, one of those people. <laughs> I, no, it's 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 incredible, but that timer kills me. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm just terrified the whole time I'm playing. It's too intense. That's part of the atmosphere, and I agree it's not for everybody. Yeah, but, it's a uh, wonderful game. If you're okay with the the with certain doom at every minute, then it's the game for you. <laughs> but uh, I think I've spoken enough about Majora's Mask for one lifetime. So, so basically, in summary, not as many games on N64, but the really great games really and truly were great. Like world class, as good as anything on any system. Definitely, so. uh, some of the most important games of all time. Period. I, regardless of how, how well the system did or was remembered, Mario sixty four and Zelda sixty four shaped their respective genres and the, basically the course of three D gaming as a whole. I think. Yeah, Mario sixty four, Zelda sixty four, and in a weird way, Goldeneye, even though it doesn't hold yes. up just because no. of what it did. Absolutely. No, like absolutely, yeah. I don't think there would be Halo if Goldeneye didn't prove that it was viable. On consoles. Yeah. So weird to think that Nintendo was on top of that, <laughs> that they were the cutting edge. We should talk about the uh, strengths and weaknesses of the N64. Obviously, the biggest strength is that there was a uh, an N64 released in the shape of Pikachu. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I worked at a GameStop, and I believe our back room was half Pikachu and 64s because they were not really striking while the iron was hot. They were striking the Pokemon iron, but the right. N64 iron had already been discarded and... Yeah. It was in a landfill somewhere. I, I kind of want one of those RGB modded just it's so for the novelty of it. You can you can touch Pikachu's little cheek to reset your machine. Yeah. Right? yeah. We have one at the office at IGN, and it's a lot of fun playing <laughs> It's just so cute when he glows. It's wonderful. But you were talk, asking about the strengths. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, the lack of loading times, which in that period was a significant advantage in some ways. Um, in some you, ways, yeah. Uh, you pop Mario in, Mario just worked, uh, and that was nice. If I'm yeah. allowed to read from your notes, I, I, I assume I am. Uh, analog controls. Uh, I, I found out that Genyo Takeda, 
developed the analog stick. And that was uh, for as crummy as it was in terms of how long it lasted, it was the first major analog stick in a console context that was very important. I mean, Atari 5200 had an analog controller. That's true. But it was bad. Yes. I'm, uh, okay. it, didn't, it didn't have the ability to recenter. Yeah, so that... the first uh, actually uh, usable, useful, usable, functional. Yeah, functional, functional. Yeah, yeah. that 5200 controller is kind of like holding a limp fish in your hand. Just a dead <laughs> limp thing. It's such a – It just, yeah, like, it just like slides just a, around. A weird yeah. oversight. It also breaks mm-hmm. two weeks after you buy it. Yeah. Anyways. So N64, I mean, that that controller was still also pretty fragile, mm-hmm. but um, it wasn't quite as as fragile as the human hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the, I think, probably the first game system that had to uh, send people gloves to wear while they played video games. That was only because there was Mario a certain Party. Mario. I mean, almost I would say like thirty percent of the Mario Party mini games involved rotating the analog stick. So of course you put your you put your palm on it and spin it like that. So you would get these huge horrible blisters and also d- destroy your controller. And right. I th- I think by year two or three, if you rattled any N sixty four controller, you would hear just plastic moving mm-hmm. around in there. They were not built to last. It took me a while to get my head around that thing. I, just how to hold it first mm-hmm. off, and you'd see people holding them different ways. I mean, so yeah, you, you had you had helpful again Nintendo directions on how to hold in in their documentation, but just wrapping your hands around it. And it did a lot of odd stuff. You had the two the two main face buttons and the four camera buttons over above those, which could double as fighting game or extra function buttons, but were often used to sort of awkwardly swing the camera around. And you had the, the port in the bottom as well, which was, you know, you had a controller with a port in it to plug something into. That was unusual at that time. Yeah, we talked in the... Um... In, in the in the uh, Super NES episode, Bob made the case that the uh, like L, R, X, and Y buttons were an attempt to uh, suggest like, suggest yeah. the third dimension. But I don't think that's really true because mm. the N sixty four was the first controller to have a Z button, and the Z, Z axis is the third dimension. But did it have X and Y? <laughs> it did not. Yes. It had C up, down, left, and right. I mean, in this case, it was explicitly saying the Z axis. You're living in it. You know. This will help you with, you know, things that involve perspective, in other words. The uh, the N64 controller is basically a Super NES controller onto which has been grafted two little handles and then this weird tail <laughs> in the middle. And at the, the base of the tail is installed the, uh, the analog control uh, stick. And then on the backside is the Z button. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. It's, it's odd. It's, it's, a, it's a strange controller and games and manuals had to say here is how you hold this con- this this controller there were diagrams yeah that z button was very satisfying to press though in terms of when it was used well like whenever i play mario 64 on wii u or whatever doing those slide jumps across a level are not as fun when i'm not doing the z trigger because it just feels like such an important part of that movement mm-hmm. yeah yeah, it was uh, the first mainline controller trigger I can remember other than that weird Coleco thing. Mm. I can't actually think of a of a pack-in controller that had that nice kind of – it was a strangely unergonomic controller that had some wonderful ergonomic qualities. Yeah. That was one of them. Yeah. Um, it, it was weird because it had like the L and R buttons on the mm-hmm. shoulders, but you couldn't really use the L button that much because no. you almost never had your hand on the outside prong. Uh, to use the D-pad. The D-pad was, like, deprecated. And I can't think of any game, uh, I'm sure there are a few, but I can't think of any game where you held it traditionally with the two outside handles and used the D-pad. I can't think of many, I can't think of one offhand. There has to be at least one. You'd think but so, but... Was was the L button ever used is what I want to know. I don't, I can't yeah. think of anything. There's probably something. But at the same time, like, they were fumbling toward 
what would become the standard of game system controls, those C sticks, uh, C buttons, um, which would become the C stick on on GameCube, were like the the you know like the 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 genetic progeny of uh, or predecessor to uh, to the analog yeah. right stick, mm-hmm. um, and Sony would do that eventually. I think in our Mario sixty four episode, I've uncovered that Miyamoto was kind of regretful of the the C buttons, and I think maybe in retrospect he wanted there to be a stick that that felt like more of a logical choice. But they didn't know. I mean, they were just figuring things right. These I things mean, out. yeah, things were still like people were still figuring out how does how's a, how does a third dimension work in a video game, and the 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 selection they made having basically six face buttons made sense. It felt like a logical evolution of you know that was what Sega's uh, Genesis. You know, secondary controller, the the optional controller, had the the Saturn uh, analog pad had that. Yeah, like that was not a strange or inexplicable design choice. Now this was and, the age of fighting games, and uh, you know mm-hmm. when they were doing their planning, they had a problem. And there were I need there were a lot of fighting games on N sixty four. You mentioned the two D ones, but there was like fighting vipers. There was gasp killer instinct. Or, sorry, old. deadly arts. Yeah. Um, Clay there Fighters, sixty war gods, all, all kinds of like, bio Victo- something, bio, bio freaks, bio freaks, right? Yeah, I mean, there were like Victokai and. Did you say Fighting Vipers a second ago? I think that was. I did, Saturday. and that was not the right. Yeah, that was that was mis- a mistake. Sorry it was, about that. Like so, Flying the, Dragon. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, of. yeah. The N sixty four out of the gate was ready for three D games. In in Sony's case, uh, their controller was god awful for three D games, and they had they would they would have to sell you a new one in a few years for you to enter that kind of three D world. That they, right. Yeah. And Developers still couldn't really take full advantage of it yeah, because they true. had to assume that you just were using the stock Sony controller. Outside of like mm-hmm. Ape Escape where it's like, no, you have to have a DualShock. Right. Yeah. yeah, so like not every game would take advantage of it just because they didn't have to. Yeah, I mean the the uh, Sony analog controller had – and then the DualShock also had a button that you had to press to turn on the analog functionality and some games wouldn't recognize it. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a mess. Nintendo at least like they didn't get it quite right. But I feel like Sony's DualShock, you know, like the way that that ended up was more of a botch job than the N64's setup where every every system, like every game, you knew it was going to have the same weird controller. It yeah. was also a controller that weirdly came rumble pack ready. Yeah. And that's very strange. Well, the, uh, yeah. the, the onboard expansion port that you mentioned yeah. was um, was interesting because like, you know, the 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 – Market was moving toward memory packs. Mm-hmm. Um, Sony had, you know, a cartridge that plugged in for memory. Uh, Sony had. Did I say Sony? I meant Sega. Yeah. Saturn had um, the cartridge. PlayStation had the memory cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even before they had Neo Geo with its memory cards. So this was kind of like a thing that was happening. Um, and you know, that expansion port I think was originally conceived for memory cards, but they didn't really need it because cartridges. No had the ability to save on cart. That really mm-hmm. irked me. I felt that was Nintendo nickel and diming people where some some games actually they could they you had to have a controller pack to save things. They eventually would stop doing that. I don't think that was Nintendo nickel and diming things. Really? You just thought they I were I think I think they were no, it was the publishers, the, mm, the developers who okay. made the game. Yeah. Um they could have said, "Well, we'll pay you know extra for the battery backup," but they wanted to you know. I just wonder if there was an incentive penny. for people to use that memory pack. I doubt yeah. it. Yeah, I just feel like I, no one really had one, and very few games re- required one explicitly. You know, you couldn't save to the cart. But right. Yeah, it was not, no. It yeah. was it was not done very often, but it was. I think it was done by sort of uh, skinflint publishers who yeah. wanted to save it. You know, like That's twenty true. cents or something on on buying a lithium battery for their <laughs> cart. Um, 
So yeah, that was that was weird, but it did make for you know the analog, uh, not the analog, the the Rumble Pack mm-hmm. uh, force feedback, which came with uh, Star Fox sixty four. Um, that was again not the first time there had ever been force feedback with a controller. Like you know, you could buy PC controllers that had that, um, but for a console, yes, that was new, and it also allowed other opportunities like the you know the. The connectivity with the Pokemon games. Mm-hmm. Um, you could That's right. The N64 transfer pack. Yeah. There was that one, I think um, you might have mentioned it, the, the connectivity. The uh, the thing that you uh, plug into your N64 controller that you could plug a Game Boy game into, and that worked for things like Mario Golf, and you could you can shoot your Mario Golf person into Mario Golf N64. Do you yeah, know what I'm talking about? Um, I, I do. It was, Did that work with anything else? I, it was specifically built for you to put a Game Boy game in, and I bought it just for Mario Golf because it was like $3 by that point. What a I weird no accessory. Idea. What a weird no accessory. Never used um, this. It's real. Yeah, I think it only worked with a few games. Yeah. It wasn't like the Dreamcast VMU where that was built in. No, no. It was something you had to like, But it was kind of a predecessor there. to the VMU. Uh, there was no screen. Right, but yeah, I mean like yeah. the concept. The, yeah. The the dual, duality. Yes. The cross-platform play. Um. What yeah. A, what a weird beast of a console. We put they put an extra port in the controller, and they don't put a sound chip in the console. <laughs> it's a really right. odd series of design they, choices. They missed a few oh, and, and you know there was also the the extra port on the console on the front. Yeah. yeah. Where you could put a RAM expansion. Like they built a connector specifically for a RAM expansion. Like I don't think there's anything else you can put in there. No. But I guess RAM was more expensive to include in the system than a connector was. That kind of it's ruins... A really weird... It's really strange. I like the idea of the RAM pack or whatever, but I think it ruins the sleek design of the N64 where it's just like there's an open hole in the middle now with this red grate um, where yeah. the RAM pack went out. Yeah, there was, a little, there was a little thing that came out and then you put something yeah. else in there. You put the RAM pack in. But I liked that sucker. I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of splitting, your, splitting your market by, by adding a necessary peripheral. But at 50 bucks uh, for what it gave you, uh, that sucker was a lot of fun. Is it that ship? expensive? Did wow. it ship with yeah. Donkey Kong 64 or is uh, that just an option? You could buy it with Donkey Kong 64. You could also buy it on its own. And if, if I'm correct, it was about fifty bucks when it when it debuted. Is that why they were able to cut the cost of the system from two fifty to two hundred? I wonder because mm-hmm. they cut out four megabits of RAM or whatever that they planned to have otherwise. Mm-hmm. I, I, do, I do not know. So, how do you feel about the design of the N64, Jeremy? It's identical in Japan, right? For the first it time, is, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of like it. I like the four little I feet. I don't know how I feel about it's it. Very it's very like so... it's very like car like. Yeah, it's, it's like very, yeah. it's like a 1950s car. Like mm. I expected to have you know fishtails <laughs> or something. It's um, that, is, that is true. Yeah, it's like no other game console ever. Mm. Like nothing has ever had that sort of elegant, graceful flow to it. I don't know what the the inspiration was for that design. Um, it looks something between a jukebox and a child's toy. Mm. Uh, I, I like it's, it as well. It's, yeah, I mean, they went with a kind of like a very stoic dark gray, like a charcoal gray. And I think that's good. That that made the system look a lot more serious than the uh, the Super NES. But, yeah, it's just – it's strange. I, I do like the, the front ports. Like it says, hey, here's a game system for a lot of people to hang out mm-hmm. and play. And the and, ports are these gray things that stand out, these right. little four little divots or four little holes or whatever. And I, I like, you know, the fact that it, you know, cartridges plug right in and you can see what game it is on the mm-hmm. label. One thing, though, uh, from working at a game store, N64 games were hell to organize because there's no – the label is only on yeah. the front. 
there's no marking on the side or the top. So unless you've got like a Majora's Mask or a uh, Donkey Kong 64 or whatever, you don't know what that game is. Right. So there's no way to display them for people to look at other than just dumping them in a big giant bucket and have people like root through them like animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I used to live in Japan. And typically the, the games you buy, even secondhand in Japan, are, are well taken care of, often pristine. Were, were they but, were they in cardboard boxes in Japan as well? Uh, the, I hate that. They yeah, were, they, were, they, were, they were in cardboard there as well. But, what, but when you find them loose... It's very common in Japan, unlike any other game I know of, to find, like, little Sharpie kanji written uh, on the end yeah. there so that somebody could stack it on a shelf and identify it. You see that occasionally, which is which is uh, unusual. Yeah, those cartridges were, were pretty strange. But um, another weird thing is the way it didn't have um, the, like, the power converter built into the system. Like, the uh, the the cable terminates in this big chunky thing that you plug mm. into the back of the system. Yeah. It's a weird, like, I don't know why it does that. I've never seen that on another, on another console. I mean, now that chunky thing is just, like, the thing that breaks up the power cord in every modern console, right? The big brick. That, right. Yeah. I, I've always assumed that it's removable so that they could ask you one other question on the phone when you called <laughs> in for, for tech support. Actually, just yeah. you know what? You know what? Part. No, actually, now that I think about it... Um, it's basically the reverse of the NES and Super NES power adapter where you had those huge I AC. I hate that thing, yeah. Like those plugs that took up space in the, the power socket. They took that away. They just gave you like a really simple two-prong plug for N64. And then the uh, the conversion, you know, the AC converter is at the the yeah. uh, the other end. I really hated yeah. those fat I don't know why it's not inside adapters. the system. Yeah, yeah, the fact that it just sort of plugs in there like another cartridge. Yeah, Sony Sony always puts that inside, well, almost always, puts that inside their system. Like PS1, PS3, PS4, I can't remember PS2, but I think PS2 also. Microsoft is one you could just murder someone with. Yeah, it's like a weapon. Like, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> They're like these hot, bulky things hot, that sit behind your TV. Hot bricks <laughs> waiting to explode, yeah. yeah. I'm always afraid to touch them. <laughs> So the, uh, the, the other big thing about the N64 was that it had 3D graphics. Yeah. And the system was really custom built from the ground up to push 3D graphics really quickly and to give them a lot of detail. Um, obviously, it was not the first 3D-capable system. Um, but the interesting thing was when Nintendo was, you know, like talking about the specs of the system and its capabilities – they wouldn't give just a raw polygon number. They wouldn't say like, you know, with with PlayStation, it was like, here's how many polygons it can render per second uh, without details. And here's how many it can render with textures. Here's how many it can render gouraud shaded. Um, no, Nintendo wouldn't do that. They would just give you like the number of polygons that it could render with all effects on. They were like, well, we're not going to make just games with bare polygons. The system wasn't designed for that. The system was optimized for, you know, uh, giving, you know, textured graphics and, and detailed. Yeah, the, the 3D graphics coprocessor that, that went in there with the CPU was divided mm-hmm. into two parts. You had the signal processor that handled the base geometry, handled the base polys, and then you had what they called the display processor. And they were really proud, at least in their marketing material, of the fact that this was going to be able to do things like Z-buffering and trilinear, in, you know, oh, God. In, in, but yeah, interpolation. Z-buffering and, made a difference. Like if you yes. compare N64 graphics to PS1 graphics, 
N64 graphics are really fuzzy, but at least they're not swimmy. Yeah. PS1 graphics, it's just like the screen is is having a seizure. Tomb Raider is one of those I think of whenever I think of that. Yeah. I mean, they were all like that, but Tomb Raider was like all the textured floors. You're just like walking on a waterbed. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Z-buffering, I heard that thrown around so much when uh, this was being marketed, when people are talking about it. Like that was like a very important keynote to hit. Yep. Trilinear interpolation, MIP mapping you'd hear, anti-aliasing they talked about. And they, they regarded these, I think that's why they didn't like to talk about the polys, is they wanted to say, well, our processor makes polys, but it also does all these other things really well. Right. And we have a whole piece of the machine just dedicated to making all that stuff look even better. Mm-hmm. I, I'm guessing that's why they didn't want to talk about that. <laughs> I don't think the N64 processor could actually push as many raw polygons as the the PlayStation. That's you know that, that seemed to be the conclusion that most people came to, is like, yeah, they couldn't win in the numbers game, but you know that's that's why they're just saying like we'll talk about you know real world circumstances of our system as opposed to like here's the theoretical number you could get if all you did was triangles uh, with no details. So yeah, kind of uh, like they they sort of talked around the system, and despite the fact that it was a 64-bit system and therefore superior to Saturn and PlayStation. In some ways, it wasn't so superior. Um, it, it was it, it, kind of like the Super NES. It was superior in some ways and defective in others. And we should probably talk about the shortcomings. Mm. Um, uh, obviously, you know, kind of the big one politically was the low-capacity format. Mm-hmm. And we talked about the cartridges and how they loaded immediately, and that was definitely the appeal there. Um, Nintendo liked that, and they liked the fact that they could control, you know, the means of production if you're... Marxist Mackey. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just meant it literally. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. um, but at the same time, there was a severe limitation on on what you could put in, in your games. Mm-hmm. And when you had a company like Square that wanted to basically go into movies and have all this streaming video, like, no. Like, why would you want to put that into a tiny cartridge? You wanted to put that across three or four compact discs. You had mega, you know, gigabits of information in a time when, uh, you know, like megabytes of cartridge space were were very valuable. I generally uh, approve of a lot of Nintendo's more conservative ideas in terms of reusing old hardware, uh, sticking to the basics, not going for flashiness over game design. This feels like a real misstep, obviously, in retrospect, because in the age of multimedia, it was they they were viewed as so backwards for not embracing technologies that everyone else was. Even if we got Mario 64 and Zelda 64 as a result, two games that are just impossibly great, I feel like it's so strange that they would um, make that misstep. Even if it was, I mean, especially because it was totally clear that they wanted to do multimedia with the SNES CD and were just biding their time when it didn't work out. In a in a pre-broadband world, it also made those games much easier to pirate. Yes. Um, which was a big deal. There was a lot of piracy in the N64. That's and true. That's because the games were small enough that you could transfer them over a moment, modem, which you did not want to do with most PlayStation games. That's true. Yeah. Though, in fairness, it was more difficult to play the pirated games because in 64 emulation, it happened pretty quickly, but not well. Mm. Whereas PlayStation emulation happened really quickly and really well. You know, there was um, the whole Bleem. Connectix. Uh, <laughs> before Bleem, there yeah. was Connectix's virtual game station. That's right. Which uh, was so good and so inexpensive that Sony, like, stepped in and <laughs> really swung around some money and some legal cloud to get shut down, which is a shame because I, I owned it. It was, you know, like a Mac exclusive program for a while, and it was great. I was, like, 
I'm playing Brigadine on my my Mac. It just came out this week. That's I actually fun. didn't know about this. What's this called again? The Universal Game Station? Connectix Virtu- uh, Virtual Game Station. Okay, and this was a Mac program mm-hmm. that would run PlayStation 1 games. Mm-hmm. Wow, what year? 1998, 99. Wow. Right, right okay. off the disc, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, it was a not perfect, but a great emulator. Um, N64 was harder to do that with because of the complexity of the system. But, um, yeah, again, yeah, the cartridges did – it was easier to pass around those games even if you couldn't do anything with the, the, the cartridge memory, uh, the, the data. And, of course, there's the – again, we talked about this earlier, the cost of producing a cartridge, which according to the figures from that period – were more than twice what it costs to mm-hmm. produce yeah. uh, the CD. I have a horrifying memory of my friend uh, just getting an N64 and we were going to uh, Sears or something, some mall store, and he really wanted Mortal Kombat Trilogy and he bought it for $80, $80 yep. in 1996. And I was like, that's literally over $100 today. We were just crazy kids. Like, yep. yeah. And at the time, PlayStation games were 40 bucks. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the choice was clear. And that was not a very good port of Mortal Kombat Trilogy, I'll tell you that much. No, it wasn't. They did a lot of those arcade ports yeah. uh, there early on, especially. I guess that was the Dream Team thing again with, with Midway. And stuff. Yes. How many, um, yeah, how, many, how many members of this Dream Team are now dead? <laughs> so, so let's talk about that. Um, <laughs> You know, there were some very notable high-profile defections from the Nintendo camp when the N64 you know, was kind of brewing and about to come out. Um, Square said, we're, we're going away. We're putting Final Fantasy VII on PlayStation. At around the same time, Enix said, yeah, we're also going away, and we're putting Dragon Quest VII on PlayStation. We'll see you in five years. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like... Those were huge blows to Nintendo. I remember reading those in a magazine. I was like flipping through it at Walmart or whatever at the, the book section and was like, whoa, I want to play these games and now they're not going to be on N64. What have I done? Um, it really gave me pause. But Nintendo did make a big deal about its dream team. There were some really great developers in there. There was Rare. Mm-hmm. There was DMA, which is now Rockstar North. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, that was it. There was also... <laughs> Williams, of, okay, Williams yeah. Williams is, was good. They made great arcade games. Sierra was, Online had a good legacy, but was not a console Wait, was game. Sierra was Online Sierra one of them? No, no. Oh, have I have this wrong? I'm sorry. You, yeah, Sierra mm-hmm. Online was um, Mostly making like, PC, PC, PC games. Yeah, yeah for they, some they reason I thought they were on the Dream Team chart. No, they published, uh, you know, Half-Life. I think uh, they were on their last legs around the late yeah. 90s, yeah. Okay. Uh, but there was a claim. There was Game Tech. Get out of here. Get that off your dream team. Game, Makers game, of Jeopardy or whatever. Yeah, they, they made board games, like or not, yeah. uh, television uh, quiz show game adaptations. Yeah. There was GTE, or no, was it GTE Interactive? Did I mistype that? GTE? Help me out here. I think it might be GT Interactive. I think GT yeah. Interactive. GTE Interactive, yes. And like, help, like who did, what did they make? I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Well, not everybody finished something. That's, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> what I mean, what did they make before? You had to at least have developed something to be part of a dream team, correct? I guess. But Angel Studios, Paradigm, like studios that are no longer around or they were absorbed or they just like nothing really came from these teams. I mean, obviously Rare was big. They made GoldenEye. They made Perfect Dark. They made Donkey Kong 64, Banjo-Kazooie, Banjo-Tooie, um, Jet Force Gemini, like, you know, lots of really big games. They did Blast Corps too, right? Rare of Blast Yeah. yeah. DMA um, didn't make a lot of games because they kind of shifted over to doing uh, uh, Grand Theft Auto around this time, but they made Space Station Silicon Valley. They made... Um, Body Harvest? Uh, yes, Body Harvest. Yeah. Like some really crazy off-the-wall, experimental, inventive games. Very cool stuff. But 
They were the only good parts of the dream. The rest of the dream was a bad dream. <laughs> the dream was dead. You woke up and you realized you'd eaten your pillow or whatever. Yeah. Um, it was just bad. You know, they there were games touted and never released, like um, Robotech Crystal Dreams. Oh, where yeah. They would just yeah. show off, like, the same two sprites in different configurations <laughs> on all these screens. I know there's a story there, and I, I I think it's online somewhere. I need to read it someday. But that was that was one of those I was like, oh, I loved Robotech. It'd be cool to play this game, and never happened. But like just yeah, the the whole Dream Team thing, mm. not good. I, I again, I'm against some of these members of the Dream Team. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they seem conspicuous. I'm trying to think. Um, we talked about how Capcom released three games. Mm-hmm. Konami did okay. They released some sports games. They released that crate. Okay, the other RPG we forgot, Hybrid Heaven, right? Which was like a fighting game RPG. Two bad Castlevania games. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, the game's so nice. They but made the it Goemon twice. games. Goemon was great. Yes, yeah, uh, was Tim great. wanted us. Tim Turry wanted us to mention Goemon sixty four. Yeah. Who? Uh, which is? I mean, I think it's just okay, but it's very ambitious. Has the one of the best theme songs a game has. Like the total anime, pure Japanese theme song they kept in Japanese for the American version. Um, let's see, Namco, I don't know if Namco actually published anything on N64. There was Ridge Racer 64, but that was developed by Nintendo Software Technologies. Um, I want to say that there was a, was there a Pac-Man collection? No, actually, actually I don't think there was. Mm. I don't think. I Nam- do not remember. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, think Namco so. really did anything. You had, you had publishers like Vic Tokai mm-hmm. and, um, I can't even remember who Did else. Treasure do anything besides uh, Sin and Punishment? Uh, they did Bongayo, the original Bongayo. Oh, and Mischief Makers. Mischief Makers, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah Mischief Makers. Yeah. Um, so they did They did some games. Um, there were a few other notable developers, but for the most part, it was, um, you know, Atlas, Natsume. Uh, it was kind of smaller companies. The big companies sort of took their ball and went home, and by home I mean to PlayStation, mm-hmm. and um, had a much better time there, I think. And it seems like, I mean, um, the best games, I think, were Nintendo games. But I don't even feel that Nintendo was that uh, prolific on the N64 compared to even things like the GameCube or, or I mean, obviously that we had a lot of Nintendo games. But I feel like there's like five or six Nintendo games that are just like the good ones. Is, am, I, am, I, am I misremembering this or what? I think there's a few more than that. Mm. I, 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 you know, I don't want to go down a long list here. But, yeah, I, I'm I just like you look the, at first-party Nintendo games, yeah. you've got... You've got over a dozen. That okay, are yeah. Thing. I, I am looking at your list. I just yeah. feel like, uh, I mean, it just it just feels like they weren't all in. No, they, they, they were still were. making good stuff even late in the, the yeah. system's life. Like uh, Paper Mario, wasn't yeah. that 2002? True, true. It's one of the last yeah. games for, for the system. 2001, I guess. Early yeah. 2001. That's a great game. Yeah. I was more thinking right. of like EAD and internal developers, like what were the, what they were doing during this period. Well, we, had, we had Mario Kart, Pilot Wings, uh, Super Mario 64, um, Star Fox, Ocarina, Majora's, Paper Mario. They made some games. Well, Paper Mario was Intelligent, intelligent Systems. Yeah. yeah, it's Intelligent Systems. My, my, second part my theory is if this, if this holds any water is that they were they basically spent like four years developing or five years developing Mario 64 and Zelda 64 back to back. So they had no time for anything outside of those two games. So they got yeah, kind of a I late mean, they start. They did Star Fox. Yeah. yeah. Yoshi Story and so forth. Yuck. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying it's necessarily good. Okay. Um, I, I throw my theory away. Okay. <laughs> did they develop uh, Excite Bike in-house? I don't think so. Uh, I think I can't remember who that was. It was not in house. I think okay. I want to say they're, they're European. Whoever did it. Uh, I used to know this, and I don't know. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. I heard it was okay. good though. I never played it. I liked uh, it. Yeah, but they um, yeah they developed some pretty good stuff. There was there was good stuff on N sixty four. It was just like I said, you know, 
a bit more sparse. Mm. Yep. Um, another big setback to the N64 was its uh, lack of texture RAM. Mm. Yeah. Um, and this was a pretty big deal in a sort of subtle way. Basically, you know, when you create polygons, they're just triangles. They're like colored shapes until you apply a texture. And, you know, modern modern systems apply like multiple layers. There's like shaders and, you know, lighting effects and things like that. But at the very basic level, you get a triangle and then uh, a you put texture a sticker on it. Yeah, yeah. A texture is basically like um, a, a bitmap file that stretches across the, the triangle. Yeah. The the thing about the N sixty four's lack of texture memory is that it meant the textures themselves had to be very small, uh-huh. very low detail, yep. and they would be stretched. And because of the uh, trilinear interpolation, um, instead of you know everything being like chunky hard lines. It would be softened for anti-aliasing, which sounds good in theory, but when you're taking a really low-detail graphic and stretching it, it's like taking a tiny thumbnail photo and resizing it in Photoshop. Mm, It's just like it becomes blurry. Like there are some N64 games that I I can't play because they're so – like the textures and the the contrast is so weird and – bad that it gives me a headache. This was a problem that even then on CRTs, although CRTs softening effect did help some, no, like I, some of the games. I never beat Zelda Ocarina of Time on uh, its original hardware in in large part because it gave me headaches when I played. Yeah. Back then. Yeah, yeah on a, like a 27-inch TV. It makes it impossible now. I mean, yeah. you, you look at them now and it just hurts, hurts yeah. the eyes. Yeah, I mean, it it came along with the 3DS remake, and that's great. It's so got to the point where, where people have made new texture packs mm-hmm. for Zelda and Mario. Just be like, here, play the games now with good textures because we can do this. It's not hard to replace textures. Well, I guess it is, but some people figured it out. So, And that's such an odd omission because, again, when you read the early interviews where they're talking about this stuff, they were very proud of how they handled texturing before the thing came out. They seemed to place a high priority on it, and I wonder what went wrong there. Well, I mean, it was really just the amount of memory for the textures. If they had had, I think if they had had more texture memory, if they could have had bigger yeah. textures with more detail, they wouldn't have been stretched as far. And so that interpolation and anti-aliasing, it would have been good. It would have made everything look really crisp and nice. So maybe texture cache was another of those last-minute cost-cutting mm, measures. Right. I don't know, but it just wasn't planned out that well, and it, it did have a huge impact. Like, when you think of N64 graphics, you think fuzz, yeah, and you yeah. think fog, like those are the two kind of defining traits of the N64 look. Everything is very soft and kind of blurry and smeary. And then the draw distance is in most games is pretty poor. So you get this just like bank of fog like I think Nintendo, Superman 64. Yeah, Ooh. Nintendo really figured it out that like Nintendo like I feel like you get a pretty long field of view in uh, Zelda and Mario, but no one else could really do that trick as well as Nintendo did like Turok you, like I said, you were in Silent Hill. Five feet in front of you was fog. There was no story reason for it. But I feel like in Zelda, you could look pretty far across the mm-hmm. field. There was mm-hmm. not a lot of detail. But you could, there was still like the field was there. Right. Yeah. It was. Um. It was. It was tough. It. It really. It had an impact on on the game uh, and the games they produced. Um. And then kind of the other big technical shortcoming for the N sixty four was the lack of a discrete sound processor. Mm-hmm. This seems really weird. I mean, the in, the Super NES's sound processor was a huge deal. Like, yes. the, the music chip, we talked about that in the that episode. Um, and then for them to just completely take out any kind of discrete sound processor was a, a, a strange omission. Like, you had to allocate, uh, you know, processor time and take away time from graphics rendering and AI and, and you know, that sort of thing, like drawing the world and figuring out how the game plays in order to generate sound channels. And I, I read somewhere it's like 
each sound channel you play was like 1% of the mm. processor time. Yeah, I read a, an interview with uh, one of the old Factor 5 guys about this, and he talked about how originally Nintendo seemed to be committed to the idea that you would use the uh, part of the graphics coprocessor to do your sound. But it was also possible to loop in CPU cycles. Mm. And one of the reasons Factor 5 games had such good sound, you, know, you think about Rogue Squadron and, and uh, how the music on that was much better than others, was that they were, they found a way to constantly keep track of whether the CPU or the graphics processor oh, okay. was being overloaded more, and they would make space and switch off responsibilities. They actually wrote their own sound drivers wow. from the bottom up so that they could do that and always leave a little overhead and switch the responsibility at dynamically at different moments. It was a very elegant bit of programming, I, I think, but the fact you had to do yeah, that. Yeah, I forgot to mention LucasArts and Factor 5, but I think of anyone, they had the best technical grasp yeah. of the N64, like even more so than Nintendo. The, the later... Uh, Star Wars games they produced, mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah, like, it, it had Star Wars had such a bad start with Shadows of the Empire, but then Rogue Squadron came out and like each game successively became more amazing. It was kind of wasted on Episode One stuff, Ugh. but like yeah. still, even with Shadows of the Empire though, they developed a strategy that involved basically streaming in a low quality MP3 or whatever you want to call it. Like that was literally the John Williams music recorded, but they figured out a way to like stream it into the game. So you weren't hearing like a bad MIDI version of it. Yeah, yeah you were hearing samples, right? At that, at that I, I, I think a lot of it was just pre-recorded audio. Correct me if I'm wrong, wow. people out there. But I, I think they found a way to compress audio files and stream them into the game because it sounded like the actual music, albeit at a much lower sample rate. Yeah, personally, I still liked the uh, the iMuse system that they used in Dark Forces mm, better. Yeah, like that was MIDI, but it was really good MIDI, and it was dynamic and shifted and yeah, like uh, yeah, I it love was, iMuse. It was, it was hard to enjoy the the music in uh, Shadows of the Empire after having very recently yeah, played Dark. Forces. It was not reactive at all. No. So yeah, no, it wasn't. And but what? But they came along with some great stuff. Also, a weird thing he said in that interview while we're still in the sound was uh, he was very excited about how the sixty four DD was going to include samples because you had to put your samples in the ROM. He said you, mm-hmm. you, they gave you a sample kit, but you had to put them in the cart, and the 64DD was going to have hardware samples, oh. and that was going to open up so many doors for them. We really need to Jared, talk about why this. Why don't you tell us what the 64DD is? The 64DD is is a, is a tragic uh, yeah. tra- tragic child uh, that, that never, oh. never came to light on our fair continent. Um, so we didn't have CDs, and instead Nintendo decided to uh, maybe create a large peripheral that plugged into your N64 and allowed you to use high-capacity 64-meg rewritable disks with uh, with some storage space on them for you to make your own creations. And then they said, wow, that's not a good idea at all. Let's kill this before it can grow. And it came out in Japan a little and never reached it. This was, this was not an unprecedented idea. Yeah. The, the NES, the, the Japanese NES, the Famicom, of course, had the Famicom disk system which included, you know, it, it plugged in underneath your console and gave you 640 kilobyte um, diskettes that were rewritable, and it added an extra sound channel to the uh, mm-hmm. to the hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a, a natural evolution of this, except the the discs now had a hundred times the capacity, and uh, were based on Zip technology, which oh, boy. having lost so many projects in college and <laughs> Screw, at work use to zip discs. discs like the click of death i can't imagine Ugh. a console based on that but th- that's what they did yeah 
Yeah, Pear, um, Pear brought in Dojin the Giant to play it at work, and I just admired his bravery for turning the thing <laughs> on. I was just figured you'd kill it. It felt like they were promising this forever, and it released in Japan, I think, literally in December of 2000, or maybe December of 99, very, very late. And I feel like I could be contradicting my own research I did on the, on the Ocarina of Time episode from last year, but I believe the original Zelda was slated for this, but definitely Majora's Mask was. It was considered for there this. There was not the original Zelda. I but mean, oh, Ocarina? The, no, um... Yeah, not the original or, or Ura Zelda or whatever. There was Ura Zelda. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was Which was going of. to be like the 64DD expansion. And that was kind of, they just pruned that away until it became the Master Quest, which was almost nothing different. It was just yeah. like mirrored. It was basically the predecessor to Skyward Sword. On Yeah, you read Wii. some of the early marketing stuff. And they're like, the Legend of Zelda Twilight 4 Princess. N64, 4DD. And yeah. that's as far as they ever seemed to, to get. And it just dies. And being a huge Mother fanatic, I know like they kind of just rolled right from Mother 2 into Mother 3 on DD. So that game was in development for years and years and years. As the, the hardware was getting ready, it was a complete failure. It eventually came out on GBA. But they were making, or they're attempting to make games for it as early as 96, 97. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was excited about the idea of it and then just kind of felt this increasing sense of dread as uh, (laughs) IGN kept reporting like, yeah, this thing is never coming to the U.S. What's up with that? Um, I remember reading stuff by Pear and Craig Harris like saying, yeah, Nintendo won't admit it, but this thing's dead for American release. But there were some interesting games that came out for it. I agree, yeah. Yeah. Probably the most important was the original Animal Crossing, Dobutsu no Mori. Oh, that was a disc drive game. It was a 64 DD game. Okay, wow. Japan released really late, like 2001. Yeah. And then immediately reworked for GameCube and expanded, and that was localized. Um, But it started out as an N64 game, and that did get released in Japan. Uh, There was also, like you mentioned, Doshin the Giant. Mm -hmm. Um, That game was remade or... Was it a sequel for GameCube? But the only in Japan. Yeah. And yeah. Europe. Europe also got it. Um, then there were, you know, like the Mario Creator series, which were evolutions of Mario Paint. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and uh, I'm sure you're going to mention this, but uh, the the roots of WarioWare are buried in the game making the game making tool. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks a lot like WarioWare. There's the same like kind of uh, motif and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Like it's very much a, an evolution of Mario Paint and the Game Boy yeah. Camera. Like the missing step. In a, in a way, there were expansions to F Zero. Oh, um, yeah, just a, there's not a, not there's like there's a Sim God, City. It's like there's a Sim City for this, and you can like literally go down to Street View and watch horrible you know polygon people walk around in, into your city. <laughs> it was a neat idea, but, but yeah, but it would just would have cost so much. Probably been unreliable. It was very forward thinking in a way, but I, I think they realized pretty early on that. They were not going to sell enough of these to, to make back what they were going to spend on it, getting it out there. For, for how often Nintendo just scraps ideas and buries them in, for later use, I'm really surprised, honestly, they released this at all. And I, maybe it was like, we need to make some money on this, so let's put put it out. There were there were 10 items released for mm. 64DD in Japan. We've pretty much named them all. Mario Artist Polygon Studio, Mario Artist Communication Kit, uh, Mario Artist Talent Studio, Doshin the Giant. The Tinkling Toddler, Tinkling Toddler Liberation Front, a symbol. Wow. I want to play that. <laughs> uh, Japan Pro Golf Tour 64, F-Zero X Expansion Kit, SimCity 64, mm-hmm. Ma- Mario Artist Paint Studio. Oh, and the original uh, Doshin the Giant, like there was an expansion for it also. Uh, so and, that, then, um, and then finally, the RandNet Disc. The Randnet. Yeah, that was uh, like an online thing. I see. It's an object- objectivism. It's not a game. <laughs> yeah, right. 
Wait, so was the Virtual Boy Library bigger or smaller than 10 games? I had a feeling it was like uh, it was, it was 17 quite a bit taller. It was quite a bit larger. 18? No, it was, it was bigger than oh, that. Okay, wow. I used to go into secondhand stores that, that had it and I'd look at the games behind the glass and my hand would reach for my wallet and just be, no, <laughs> no, walked away. Never did it, never plunged, and I'm glad I didn't. For yeah. the 64DD? Yeah, I would say, I like... like Conceivably, Animal Crossing would be the killer app, but then the GameCube made it irrelevant. You know, that version is the kind of superior version of the original release. So, yeah. yeah. And plus, we couldn't, I mean, if you can't read Japanese, it, it's no good to Not you, good to obviously. Yeah. Anyway. Right. Uh, Virtual Boy was 22 games. Okay, yeah. So, it beat the 64 <laughs> It's uh, Nintendo's second biggest failure. I don't know. Would you, would you consider the disk drive the biggest failure in terms of hardware they released? I guess, but I mean, it's not like they pinned a lot of hopes on yeah, it. They I, initially did, and then they realized, uh, let's just get this thing out and see what we can do. Yeah, sometimes so, I wonder if this was released because they'd already signed agreements. You know, mm. just we have to get it out there. Because there are not a lot of them, again, anecdotally, if you look around in Japan, you don't see them everywhere like you do a lot of other failed peripherals. I think, I mean, Mother is apparently more popular in Japan, I think, especially then. I feel like that would have been the killer app, and I'm really glad it didn't happen on, on uh, the the DD because the Game Boy Advance game is beautiful, and it, it's a really good, for, uh, for excuse me, really good format for that game. Everyone should play that game. I agree. So, I feel like we've pretty much hit all the points. It's been kind of a a uh, muted celebration. <laughs> um, we've talked, we take the good and the bad. It's the facts of life. I think, I mean, even more so than uh, when we originally did this episode, and by we, I mean you guys, uh, like, today's adults are in 64 kids. Today's people entering the working world. You are between the ages of 25 and 30, maybe a little older, if you grew up with the N64 conceivably as your first console. And uh, that's kind of terrifying, but I think nostalgia for this thing is huge. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of our more listened to episodes because people... They they love this thing. I mean, um, I was I was slightly older, maybe a little more cynical, um, as pr- probably we all were. But I think there's a great amount of love for the N64 that is really coming to the surface now that people are older and want their childhoods back. Yeah, um, the, the N64 the, kid is now a sad adult. Right. The uh, the price on N64 games is is starting to really get okay. into that bubble. Yeah, there's some games that are very expensive, like Snowboard Kids Two, is what like. Twenty five hundred dollars. Whoa! Or something. Sweet lord, you can buy an actual snowboard kit for that money. You could. Yeah, what's, you could uh, probably... what's the over under in Beetle Adventure Racing? Nah, that one hasn't really done anything. All right, there we go. I um, did. It's you know some of these like rarities that were <laughs> hardly released. Um, like the Indiana Jones game that was only released at Blockbuster is pretty expensive. I don't know about the Razor Scooter game, but. Wow. I, I did most of my N64 playing actually in the year 2001, 2002. My friend just sold it to me for like 20 bucks, and everything was so cheap, so I played everything then. Like uh, I played Majora's Mask and Banjo-Tooie and all the other games that I didn't get a chance to play, and that was a, that was a great time to play it. Maybe not so much now. Yeah, that... stuff like uh, Daikatana, Conker's Bad Fur Day. Like, these are Conker's very Bad expensive Fur now. Day is uh, not as bad as Daikatana. Just want to go pl- back and play StarCraft on, uh, on an N64. Oh, Jesus, That's no. the way to do it, right? Definitely. Yeah, sure. so uh, did you want us to talk about, like... Key games and good games. I think we have. I, I, I had I had like notes, you know, to say oh, we should talk about the key games, the most important games, but we really have. What about unsung games? Uh, sure. I did want to mention, and Jared probably brought it up, Blast Corps. Yeah. Uh, which all, me and my friends all called Blast Corps because we were dumb. <laughs> uh, and I feel like this is something that people have dem- been demanding a sequel for. And I feel like we need the indie solution to this game because it's a very. Are you familiar with the game, Jeremy? Yeah, you're like trying. There's a there's a runaway like truck full of explosives, yeah. and you're basically 
smashing buildings out of its way. Yeah, to with get it with, to diff- with different vehicles with robots. It's a very smart and inventive game that is just like was only done once, and I feel like with better graphics and potentially a bigger environment, you can do so many cool things with this idea of like the demolition puzzle game. And I really want to see that um, happen. So I just wanted to throw out Blast Core as maybe one of the more unsung games. It's a rare game, so it's obviously still very popular. And uh, N64 was where Winback started, right? Right. The uh, that was basically the game that invented cover shooting. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we have I've that. never played this. Really, I haven't oh. either. Yeah. Wow. It, the cover shooting wasn't very great, but uh, yeah, no, it was developed by Omega Force back before oh. all they did was uh, Muso games. Oh, and there was a second game, Winback Two Project Pos- Poseidon, for PS2. Hmm. I don't remember that one. Wow. I think we mentioned the DMA games. Those were interesting. They're not yeah. the greatest games, but they're full of neat ideas. I couldn't get very far into Body Harvest, to be fair. I, I like the ideas in Body Harvest, but it was a little taxing to play. And I think I think the same is true of Silicon Valley. Please don't kill me, people. I know everyone loves that game. Uh, I know, Jeremy, you're a, you're a Mega Man guy. Where do you think? Uh, what do you think of Mega Man 64? What do you think of that, uh, <laughs> that, that interpretation of the 3D Mega Man games? I mean, I love Mega Man Legends, but I feel like Mega Man 64 is compromised. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's not as good. I agree it's with not you. as good. Sin and Punishment is great, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sin and Punishment is was one of those legendary things that I didn't play forever and ever and ever. And then when I finally did, I was like, oh, this is actually just as wonderful as everyone said. Mm. And a lot of times with import chauvinism, that's not true. <laughs> I have to say, uh, in terms of imports, I can't think of many, but I know like things like Wonder Project J2 seem pretty interesting. I've never played them, yep. but uh, that's something I would really like to play. And I know it's been fan translated, so... But I feel like all the good Japanese games did come over here. I can't think of any major uh, major losses that we suffered in terms Bangayo, of... Bangayo, Sin uh, yeah. Punishment. But yeah. then we eventually got Bangayo on the Dreamcast. And Sin Punishment, I guess, we didn't get that. So that was one thing we lost. Well, it came out on Virtual Console. Oh, it did Sin Punishment yeah. 1? Okay, so yeah. I guess we never really lost it. They they brought it over... I guess it, they didn't need to translate it because it had a lot of English dialogue yeah. already. Yeah. And one day I do want to play that friggin' Ogre Battle game. I have no idea what All it's right. like. And uh, it was like, oh, here's the one good RPG period. Like, I, that's all you get. I, I played it when mm. it was, uh, when it was a, a contemporary concern. And I, I didn't really like it very much. Uh, maybe I didn't have the patience. But I liked yeah. grindy, crunchy simulation and RPG-type games. And I just could not get into it despite I don't know how much I actually like to play the original Ogre Battle. So I don't know how much I would like... 64, but I, I still want to try it. Yeah, yeah. totally worth trying. There's a lot of things here. I, I didn't realize there was a Shadowgate game on the N64. Oh, yeah, Shadowgate 64. Yeah. I, I was researching for this, and I was like, what? So I, I have to play this now. I, I've got to find out what that was. Oh, oh, oh. Namco did release some N64 games. Namco Museum 64. That's right. I thought Ms. so. Pac-Man Maze Madness Ooh. and Famista 64 in Japan. Famista. That's a baseball game, I'm guessing, yeah, right? Family oh, Stadium. Okay. Oh, don't play Turok. Don't play Turok. Yeah. No. What about Turok 3 Rage Wars? Uh, I want that could be Turok 2. Which is the one that has the Confederate general riding <laughs> oh, a, tr- a, tr- that a Triceratops might... as a boss. I don't think that's an N64 one. That might be like oh, a yeah. uh, GameCube or PS2 one. Um, God, yeah. Uh, Colonel whatever. <laughs> it's oh, a, yeah. I like the idea more now. <laughs> I think it was a general, actually. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of just like goofy 3D platformers on N64. Um, I just remember Tonic Trouble. Um Glover, 
Yeah. Oh, I remember Glover. My uh, my girlfriend really likes Chameleon Twist. Yeah, Chameleon Twist. Yeah. Not to be mistaken for Chameleon Kid. Nope. Different. There, there were also a the lot X3. of three. There were a lot of ports of PC games that there, there's not a lot of reason to go back to now. Yeah. How much of the time were interesting. You had Hexen and Duke Nukem and Quake and the, again like a, the first person shooters were thick. Yeah, and that's odd. I, but I can't imagine anybody wanting to go back and experience them as anything but a curio. The best thing about that is is Duke Nukem sixty four is like you might as well be just be playing a different game because all the the things you go to Duke Nukem for are gone because it's totally sanitized. Like, this is not a strip club. You're now in Duke Burger. And, like, yeah. I like Harvest Moon 64. Yes, that's kind of where Harvest no, Moon... No, I don't know. Duke, Duke Nukem 64 is interesting in a find a stranger in the Alps kind of way. <laughs> that's true. It's like, how how do you bowdlerize this game? Yes, uh, man, they worked really hard to make that game squeaky clean for Nintendo. Where do you fall on Bomberman uh, on the N64? I have zero interest in the Bomberman series. It's okay. Competitive multiplayer, which I just doesn't interest me at all. Was it still? Weren't these? Wasn't this the era in which Bomberman was at like a there was like Bomberman Heroes, game. yeah, 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 and yeah. a Bomberman racing game. But it was not yet uh, the ultimate Bomberman game, Bolt, uh, Bolt, Bomberman Act Zero. Uh, which <laughs> of course, nothing compares. I still think that's a joke. It didn't actually happen. <laughs> I'd like to think that, anyways. He looks like an evil Rock'em Sock'em robot. <laughs> the, is that the downfall of Hudson? I think so. Uh, yeah, that or Konami. I'm not sure which. that sneaked past me. Oh, yeah. Um, one last game I want to mention is Star Soldier Vanishing Earth. Oh. The sequel to Hudson's long-running Star Soldier series. I think maybe the final game in the, in the franchise. And that's probably because I remember uh, buying a copy of it. This is Japan only, right? No, yeah. it came out here. Really? Okay. I remember buying a copy of it and uh, it was like marked down and... The guy at the uh, the store when I bought it told me, "Oh, hey, that game sold sixty copies." I was like, "Like, like this month?" He was <laughs> like, "No, it's like lifetime to date has sold sixty copies." Your edition is numbered. I, I don't know if he meant just like within the like EB Games or whatever or or what, but I think it was at a Babbage's. Mm-hmm. But um, what's it sell for now? I don't know. Let's look at that up. It's actually fascinating. It probably sells for a fair amount, not Snowboard Kids money, but. <laughs> The funny thing is I think uh, Nintendo remaking things has made a lot of the previous versions sort of irrelevant, like Majora's mm-hmm. Mask, Ocarina of Time. Um, I wouldn't say the DS version of Mario 64 makes Mario 64 irrelevant. I still think there's a lot of value to the original, and the DS one is just kind of hard to play, you know. Yeah. So Marty Sleva is going to smack me across the face. <laughs> if I, oh, you're going to dis- well, banjo? I, I don't, I'm not crazy about banjo, but a lot of people love it. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it's certainly an important game, mm-hmm. um, and it's not, not my cup of tea, but... Uh, Probably worth mentioning. All right. um, Star Soldier Vanishing Earth complete U.S. version sells for around $100, $125. That's it. That's it. Which is uh, kind of the going price for sort of like a middle tier rarity in 64 game. Hmm. Um, There's a lot of – like that's about what, you know, Conquer sells for. So what you're saying is buy low right now so you can sell high in a few years? You probably should have bought low a few years ago. Like when I started started thinking about developing Ultra64.com, it was actually pretty 
pretty easy to uh, to pick up complete games. And over the course of like a year that I bought the first, say, year's worth of N64 games, the prices climbed. Mm-hmm. So by the time I got to uh, the first Bomberman and, and uh, Goemon, Mystic Ninja, uh, like it was starting to get pretty pricey. And I said, man, I... I'll tell you what, nothing will ever be cheaper than the every wrestling game ever made for that thing because uh <laughs> yeah. well, you know, uh EA Sports games for Sega Genesis. Yeah, that too. That's, I mean like, like in the same category. When I worked at that GameStop and we had them out on the floor, we had to keep most of the wrestling games in the back because they they outnumbered everything else by like hundreds, <laughs> by hundreds of times. It's like WWF Raw's war, just like a a stack of Stone Cold Steve Austin just greeting you in the back room. Yeah. So it's the worst. <laughs> I've never played Madden sixty four. I wonder what that's like. Hmm. Probably like every other Madden. Yeah, except <laughs> going 64. to be my guess. <laughs> yeah. Except Smeary, it's like every every field condition is fog. Every <laughs> We're playing in Seattle again. Anyway, um, I think that's going to do it for this issue or this episode. This issue, <sighs> we have issues with the N sixty four. Clearly, I have issues. Um, so, any final thoughts on the Nintendo sixty four, Bob? For as little, uh, let me rephrase that. I really wish I had more games, more games I want to play, but the the games that are on it that are really good are super great, and we can never ignore the impact and influence that Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time had, and I love Majora's Mask to death, so for as much as I wish Nintendo embraced a different format, with without the cartridge format, we probably would not have these, these game-changing 3D games, so um, I feel like this is a very, very important console regardless of how it disappointed us, so that's my final take. A fine library of games, uh, a strange beast, uh, but a wonderful, wonderful little bit of ar- archaeology to, to look at uh, from an age when consoles were actually different from one another. It <laughs> tried some new things. It succeeded in some, failed in others. Uh, I'm much more interested in a flawed experiment uh, than, than I am in something that's just too glossy to, to even look at. So I think the N64 is a wonderful console and had a, a library of things that I wanted to play. As for myself... I bought an N64 at launch, sold it about a half a year later, and then about a year after that, I bought another one and kept it. Um, it. It took me a while to kind of warm up to it, and I still have, you know, it's still a letdown, you know, considering how faithful I had been to Nintendo to that point. Not not out of, like, you know, a sense of loyalty or anything, just Nintendo consoles were where I found all the games that I wanted to play. N64 gave that up, but I feel like Nintendo recovered after that and started to build back up toward winning my affections with the GameCube. So it was kind of a a difficult moment in Nintendo's history, Um, a very important moment in a lot of respects, some good, some bad. Um, But, you know, like kind of a kind of like a midpoint, like a turning point for the company saying, what are we? Um, And they'd really kind of hit that stride with Wii and DS but I don't think they would have gotten there without the N64's complications and challenges. Mm. So, yeah, not a bad system. I don't know if I'll ever do that in Ultra 64 thing or not, but if I do, please look forward to it. Uh, so, anyway, that wraps it up for this episode. Uh, Jared, thanks for coming in Thank to you. Uh, share your thoughts on the system. You have took extensive notes more so than maybe any other retro notes guest I've ever seen. <laughs> you so came thank really you prepared. Yeah. yeah, it's great. Well, thank you guys very much for having me. Yeah. You took this seriously. Yeah, <laughs> we don't. Um, <laughs> you can you can find Retronauts at retronauts.com, on usgamer.net, and on iTunes, and of course on social media, because that's where you go to find things these days. 
of course, we are supported by Patreon, so please consider keeping the show alive with a small contribution. It's not too bad. It's not too painful. I pay more each month for Spotify, and I don't even mm-hmm. listen to that. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Oh, right. I'm Jeremy Parrish. That's right. I'm on Twitter as GameSpite, and I write for usgamer.net and uh, gameboyworld.com, or gameboy.world if you prefer. Hmm. Jared? Where can we uh, find you? You can find me at IGN. I, I uh, make all kinds of things there. I write. I make videos. Uh, do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and uh, have a good time with that. You can also find uh, a little show I do called Pockets Full of Soup, uh, which is a uh, tiny beacon of happiness in the dark void of the internet. Hmm. And what is that exactly? <laughs> Pockets Full of Soup is a interview and storytelling show. Oh, where can we find that? Uh, PocketsFullofSoup.com. Hey, and you can also find sense. us on uh, other places that you find podcasts, Twitter, Facebook, cool. and stuff like that. Check it out. I am Bob Servo on Twitter. This is Bob Mackey, by the way. And you can find my writing at usgamer.net, somethingawful.com. And I do another podcast called Talking Simpsons. It's a chronological exploration of The Simpsons. That is up every Wednesday at lasertimepodcast.com. Or just look for Talking Simpsons in your podcast machine if you like Talking Simpsons. I'm sorry, if you like The Simpsons, you'll like Talking Simpsons and vice versa. Thank you very much. And that wraps it up for another fine episode of Retronauts. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I love you. We'll be back next week. (laughs) 